0: Welcome back to the program. Imagine a machine that can rewire itself, find its own way to work around non working circuits, heal its own bugs and viruses, find and adapt to new sources of energy, and know when it needs repair and attention. No, it's not the latest product from Silicon Valley. It's the human brain. The recent discoveries about the brain's ability to adapt its neuroplasticity have truly redefined how we imagine the brain and how we treat it in the face of disease and trauma. It also leads us full circle, perhaps, to better design and develop artificial intelligence and machines that actually can mimic the amazing abilities of the human brain. At the cutting edge of understanding all of this is my guest, Dr. Norman Deutsch. He's a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and New York Times best selling author. He's on the research faculty at Columbia University's Center for Psychoanalytic Training and on the faculty of the University of Toronto's Department of Psychiatry. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Norman Doidge here to talk about his latest work, The Brain's Healing Way, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. Dr. Norman Doidge, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much.
0: Delight to have you here. One of the things about this neuroplasticity is that while it is a new understanding that we have today, as a result of so much technology that allows us to map the brain and see what's going on, the idea of it, the notion that the brain does this, has been around for quite some time. Talk about that.
1: Well, it, it was around, but it was a minority position. Um, there were people, that, you know, in the early 1900s. Even even Freud himself had a model. Said that mental activity could change brain circuit connections, but it was the minority report. The mainstream view was that the brain was fixed and unchanging, and that uh, after infancy or early childhood, the circuits were were permanent. There's nothing you could do about it. And if you were born with a brain problem, or if you got a brain disease or brain injury or stroke or something like that, um, there's nothing you could do. You would try to learn to live with it and work around the problem. And it also meant, of course, if you were aging and you were trying to preserve or maintain your brain, um, you couldn't do anything because the brain was seen as hardwired, like a machine with parts. And the only change that the machine undergoes is it wears out through... (laughs) It degenerates. It's use it and lose it. So this new view of the brain, that it's plastic... Just turns that all on its head, and uh, you know, it's shown that we're actually plastic, changeable, adaptable, from cradle to grave.
0: When did we begin to really see that this could happen? When did it move from being, as you say, a minority view to something that doctors and scientists really began to look at as a real possibility?
1: The 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 original experiment, you know, I would say well, there were a couple of experiments that were done in the twenties that were written off. There were some good experiments done in the very late 70s, but I would say it was only in the 90s that it started in certain parts of neuroscience to become more noted. And I would say that it's only around 2005, six, That very uh, around 2007, I think there was a a, ch- a sort of a general recognition um, in in, in my first book, I, I, I took all these people who were working in different silos okay. showing the brain was plastic and, and brought them all together to show that um, there was actually a, a revolution here happening in, in science and medicine. Um, and so, you know, around that time, it was accepted in the labs. The problem is that many people who have been trained before that period um, are using treatments that don't take that into account. Um, unless, of course, they're doing a lot of, you know, and keeping a close eye on neuro, neuroscience. There are some areas in medicine that take more account of it than others, or, or in psychology and so on. But uh, I, I have to say, for patients, um, it's, you know, it's just beginning to sort of trickle, uh, to, to come online, if you will.
0: When we try and understand how neuroplasticity works, and even in the context of some of the remarkable stories that you tell in the brain's way of healing, is there a single concept or construct of neuroplasticity that takes place in the brain, or is it a result of different systems that are working, all of which together have different kinds of neuroplasticity in terms of the way the brain responds to different situations?
1: That is a great question. I think neuroplasticity, it's, it's like the latter to some degree. In other words, the brain evolved to change in a changing world, but plasticity happens at many levels of the brain. The, the commonest kind that's talked about is the plasticity that occurs in the circuitry of the brain between neurons that allow them to change their connections, strengthen them, weaken them, form and unform and reform new circuits. But that's possible only because, you know, we've learned that genetics uh, aren't just about what's, pa- you know, the, the features that are passed on from parents to children. Um, but, you know, that's called the the template function of genetics. There's another component of genetics, which is that there are these, genet- there are these switches in our genes, and they can be turned on or off depending upon what we do or our mental activity or just the activity of the brain. So there's a genetic component and then they make different kinds of, they, they, they cook up different kinds of proteins to change the structure of the cell. Then there's the plasticity I talked about between the neurons and then whole departments of the brain can reorganize themselves. So um, it, it happens at many levels in the brain.
0: Is there a genetic component to the way in which this neuroplasticity plays itself out? In other words, beyond just neurons that fire together being wired together, are there other aspects that are determined as a result of genetics?
1: I mean, there's probably a slight variability, but, you know, we this is we don't know that yet. What what we know is this: that every every brain is plastic in humans and animals. But not only is plastic, plasticity possible in some situations, but it's the way the brain works. It's the modus operandi of, of brain and, neuro, and neural tissue um, to be capable of a significant amount of change whenever, you know, when, when we learn there's changes you know, between brain cells. So, what, But we haven't studied whether, for instance, let's say someone who's got a very, very, very scary high-key very high IQ um, has more plasticity in their brain or not. That would be an interesting thing to study and attempt to measure. Um, I just, to my knowledge, that hasn't been looked at. Um, But I would just say this, you know, this is the product of millions and millions of years of evolution. So everybody has got a plastic brain and a plastic enough brain to improve their functioning if they use their brain if they challenge their brain, etc. I mean, we've seen examples. I wrote about this in my first book. Now that IQ, which was thought, you know, mm-hmm. for the longest time to be stable over a lifetime, can actually be improved with certain brain-based interventions. Um, the scientists involved in this didn't set out to raise IQ. They were often working with children who had learning disorders, and one of the the great breakthroughs in brain plasticity is the discovery that learning disorders of many many kinds can be improved with various kinds of brain interventions that I describe in the Brains with Healing. But because they had learning issues, um, we were often tracking, you know, their IQ. And to our pleasant surprise, many different investigators have found that IQ can go up with these things. So. There's, you know, this core plasticity in, in, you know, people who had all sorts of learning challenges, and I'm sure they exist in everybody.
0: The other corollary to that, and the other interesting question within this context, is the nexus between plasticity and creativity and and the way those two things might or might not really work together.
1: Mm -hmm. I I don't cover that in my book, but, um, you know, that's sometimes... Creativity, there's many kinds of creativity. Um, sometimes creativity is inhibited by the brain, actually. There are parts of... When we do certain activities, we inhibit other kinds. And, you know, people who are creative often talk about being creative for periods and then having blocks. Um, and so, I mean, it's a, it's a really complicated subject, but it seems that some people... Who are creative and think outside the box have a different kind of way of doing mental associations. They seem to be able to link up different realms very, very quickly. They see correspondences between mm-hmm. different realms and they put things together. So they, it's like their the the mental net that they have is, is they cast a wider net when they're thinking about a problem, uh, whether that's related to plasticity or just a kind of organization. Thing in the brain, I, I just don't know, um, but I suspect there is some kind of tie into plasticity. They they just seem to be less rigid in some ways. Be- because it's a the complicated. You
0: know, I was going to say the other areas that you do talk about that do seem to be related to this in some way are things like visualization and meditation and the impact that they have in shaping the brain. I mean that that all seems to be under the same kind of rubric as, as a discussion about creativity in some ways.
1: Well, we've, we've had very, very strong studies of meditation now and brain structure, and you know, Richard Davidson and, and others took monks of the Dalai Lama, who you know, people who had done thousands, tens of thousands of hours of meditation, and put them in brain scans. We've known since the 1950s that people in these traditions, yoga traditions, meditative traditions, can alter parts of the nervous system and get control of their nervous systems in ways that weren't thought possible. Um, Now we can see brain structure changes on it. In the brain's way of healing, I try to go to the next step. You know, there's a lot of people in America who are meditating and very comfortable with with that Eastern practice, uh, finally. Um, But there are other aspects of Eastern practice that uh, mainstream science is not that comfortable with. In the East they've often talked about the relationship of mind and energy. Um, It it often seems hard to define. To some people it seems very flaky. and They also talk about visualization. But in this book I show that Western neuroscience is beginning to be able to have models that comprehend some of these things. So I I talk about the use of visualization in treating chronic pain and the, the stories of people who have recovered after decades of chronic pain and they tried you know all available known treatments you know both western and eastern you know they've tried acupuncture and all the medications which can you know have so many side effects and be so addictive and nerve blocks etc and failed but with with visualization occurred because of brain you know the way the plastic brain works you basically it, it's the work of uh, actually someone from California, from San Francisco, Dr. Michael Moskowitz, who's a mm-hmm. psychiatrist turned pain physician, who himself had two, uh, two major pain experiences. And um, At one point, he was, he's a, a Huck-Finnish kind of guy, and in middle age, he climbed on a tank and basically jumped off it, and his corduroy caught, and his femur longest bone in the body popped in three spots. And he was practically bleeding to death his, as he lay there. And his thigh was as big as his waist, filling up with blood. But he discovered if he, and his pain was 10 out of 10, but he discovered if he stayed perfectly still, it would go down to a zero. And that's because acute pain is a warning system. And it basically is there to penalize you if you do anything that will hurt the body part well, we didn't move. Remember when President Reagan was shot, he just kind of stood there. Uh, he didn't feel anything as he stood there. Now, so as he, he's lying there, possibly dying, waiting for an ambulance, he's thinking, boy, I've always taught that there are switches in the brain that turn off pain, because um, that's the main theory, but I'd never experienced it. It's really, really true. That was his first lesson. The second lesson was, he was water skiing or on one of those and on those inflatable tubes with his daughters. they flipped over um, and he, he hurt his neck badly, and you know a nerve was being pinched all the time and he had an acute pain syndrome that developed into a chronic pain syndrome and in acute pain, as i said it's it's actually our friend, although it hurts because it protects us, but chronic pain happens when not only the body part is damaged, but the pain system's nerves are damaged. And basically what happens is, because the brain is plastic, uh, if, if a nerve is pinched over and over and over again, the circuitry gets better at processing pain, and you're left with this pain syndrome. And so he read about 15,000 pages of... Neuroscience on neuroplasticity during this period, because he he was disabled by this pain. He was mm-hmm. often eight out of ten, and he discovered that there are areas in the brain that process both visual imagery and pain. You know, think about it. You know, when you're in pain, sometimes you can't regulate your emotions, and that's because there's areas that process both pain and emotion, and the pain takes over those brain maps. So he basically decided that every time he had any pain, he would visualize something, it didn't matter what, to force the brain to competitive, to use those areas to, for vision instead of pain. And it, it took about a year, but he started to get results after several weeks of just moments of pain-free period. And now he's worked with a number of patients to get them, and got them off medication or lowered it significantly using this visualization technique.
0: What have we learned, and it relates to the story you just told, what have we learned in terms of the time frame of this plasticity? How quickly can the brain remodel itself, even in small ways?
1: It can remodel itself very rapidly, you know, within, you know, several days. But it won't stay permanent unless you stick at it. I, I've seen many, many examples of people who make significant improvements, let's say over, over six weeks, that stick if they're doing various kinds of brain exercises. Um, I mean, that's just uh, across many different silos. Um, you know, maybe an hour a day, five times a week. You know, for people learning things like Braille or, or, or many, many of these, these kinds of challenges. If you've, so I would say this. We use these neuroplastic interventions in different situations. In children with learning disorders, some of them have very, very limited processing areas and you know very discrete abilities, like reading symbols or math or um, um, being able to remember five, you know they can remember three things barely, but not seven things like most people in a phone number and so on. If you're building up circuitry. Um, that isn't there, I, I think you have to give it a good six weeks. I mean, if you've had massive brain damage in an area uh, like, that occurs in the kind of, or, or, or spread out through the brain in many places, I described some interventions that are mm-hmm. just radically helpful for MS, uh, traumatic brain injury, stroke, those kinds of things. Um, you're looking at a couple of years if it's a one-time uh, of, of doing these interventions, if it's a one-time event, let's say it's something like a stroke, there are interventions that can work over several weeks to go from being barely able to walk to being able to walk, um, and then you have to maintain it. And after a while, once you're walking, the walking itself maintains it. If you have an ongoing progressive disease like ms then you probably have to do these interventions every day to counteract what the ms is doing to you um that's what we're what we're seeing so uh does that give you a kind of a time frame
0: indeed and what is the impact of external influences things like the neuromodulation stimulation that you talk about okay so
1: when the brain is damaged um we've tended to think that what, whatever you cannot do is proportional to the brain damage. If you can't move your hand, it must mean that the whole brain area for the hand is, is messed up. If you have no balance when you stand up, we've assumed that most of the balance apparatus is wiped, wiped out. But what I show in this book is that that's often not the case. Um, it's not quite true that neurons are either on or off, as most people think. It's, that's too digital. When Neurons are only completely off and not firing when they're dead. But often when there's brain damage, some neurons are dead, firing nothing. Some are sick and they're firing irregular signals, which are not useful in the brain. And those irregular signals are going to healthy neurons that are getting confused information. And then there's some healthy neurons that are not affected by the irregular signals. So, the functioning of that brain, which I call the noisy brain, is the sum of the dead neurons and all these noisy signals, but some of the cells are pretty healthy. And if you can retune the brain, you know, get its pacemakers, if it's like a heart, working at the right beat, you can often get radical, quick improvements. And the way, we have multiple ways now, I show in the book, of retuning the brain, Sometimes thought will do it. Sometimes outside stimulation will do it. It can be light, sound, very, very low, low levels of electricity just to turn on sensory cells. All of those things can modulate, there, I call it neuromodulate the brain. The most dramatic, you know, One of the most dramatic examples in the book is the use of this thing called the pawns, which is a... I think you might have been referring to that, mm-hmm. which is this... Um, device you put on your tongue and it, it just stimulates, it gives enough electricity to turn on the touch receptors in, on your tongue. And the tongue is very wired into the brain stem, which is the part of the brain that does a lot of homeostatic regulation. What I mean by that is it, it controls aspects of your nervous system and your sensory system, etc. And if that area is noisy, this thing on the tongue. Uh, which feels like popping champagne bubbles, can reset it. And that has had great results in MS, Parkinson's, stroke. It's been studied intensively by the U.S. Army now for traumatic brain injury.
0: We're just about out of time, but finally, talk a little bit about dementia as being something that stops this plasticity and what we're learning about that.
1: Well, that's a very good point. Um, You know, we've looked at dementia as though... It's, it's all about chemicals, and of course there are, there are major chemical changes in dementia. But if you stand back and look at what's happening in the brain in something like Alzheimer's dementia in particular, it's a brain that's losing its plasticity. Um, it's, lose, it's, it's literally shrinking, but it's also losing the ability on many different levels to change and respond to experience uh, or turn short-term memories into long and so on. And so now what we're doing is looking at methods of not curing it, because once a person is diagnosed with it, it's very, very progressed, but deferring it or reducing the risk of symptoms. And there's this incredible study that just came out of Wales um, that followed men for 30 years and found that if they do five things, simple things, you can defer, the, you can defer or you can reduce the risk of experiencing dementia by sixty percent, uh, and it's exercise which uh, triggers nerve growth factors and a few new cells in the brain. That's the most powerful. That's the most powerful thing you can do. Not smoking is the second most powerful. Being a normal weight, eating fruits and vegetables, and drinking low amounts of alcohol, low to moderate, but not an alcoholic's idea of moderate. <laughs> I mean truly moderate.
0: Doctor Norman Deutsch His book is The Brain's Way of Healing, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. Doctor, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you so much for taking interest in this kind of work.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.